This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Second Peter chapter uh, 1, we're starting verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now stop there for just a second. We don't have time to unpack all this uh, in verse number one. There's just a lot of really good Bible doctrine here, first of all. Uh, we see that, that Paul first considers himself a servant or a bond slave of Christ. Uh, secondly, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to those who have the same type of precious faith that he does. Now Paul sometimes would write to churches or regions of churches, like the churches at Galatia. Um, sometimes Paul would write individual letters to Timothy, to Titus. Peter is writing to Christians abroad who share his same faith as well. With us through the righteousness of God, how do we get that? We get that through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. By these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound and make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We had a great time at our uh, family camp this past weekend, and uh, we basically went out to Kaneohe. We had like uh, six acres of land that we just uh, let kids run wild and just kind of did what you wanted to do, and uh, it was a great time for sure. The, one of my favorite parts of the, the, the day was having watching everybody set up their tents, uh, and you see people who have never set up a tent before in your life, and it shows, right? And, and here's the, the funny part. Me and Trey, we're, we're sitting there talking, and one guy who I won't say because I would never publicly shame a guy who did his best to put up a tent, right? Uh, but uh, he's sitting there, and he's standing back, and he's looking looking at it like this, and you see him start looking around, and finally he gets the instructions, and then he's just like, like this, and you see him over there, and I go, I asked Trey, I said, you think we should help him? He goes, no, nah, he's good. All right, fine. But it, it was neat because he'd done everything that he knew how to do. He just thinks like, hey, this is, just makes sense, and then you see him get stumped, and what does he do? He looks for the instructions, and so many times you and I are the exact same way when it comes to life, aren't we? We try to put our life together and try to make everything work the way that it should and uh, make sure that everything lines up exactly how we want it to. And we stand back and can't figure out why in the world life isn't doing what we're telling it to do. And then it's like, I don't know, maybe I should pray about that. Maybe I should look at the Bible and see if there's any instructions or anything that I could follow that would be helpful there. And we sometimes kind of use God's word as kind of a last resort, or maybe it's good for this situation, but not every situation. Uh, the Bible's good for every situation. And I, I believe that if I said this morning, you know, how many of you believe that the Bible is the word of God? We'd have a, amen. You know, how many of you believe that the Bible contains all the instructions that we need to live a, a good, godly life? Amen. How many of you believe that the Bible has the answer to everything that we're going to face in life? Amen. How many of you spent at least 10 hours in the Bible this past week? You'd probably go really quiet. How many of you spent five hours in the Bible last week? Probably quiet. 
I don't know, does five minutes a day count? Let me just tell you this, everything counts, okay? But if we really believe that this is the word of God and it's our instruction book for life, we need to live like it. We need to give attention to the word of God like it is the word of God. And here's the worst thing for many Christians. They'll agree that it's the Word of God. They should agree that they should live their life by it, but they have no idea what it contains because they don't actually read it. That's problematic. God never intended to be a spiritual 911 that we call in case of emergency. God never intended His Word to be instructions when all else fails. God expected His Word to be our primary instructions that we have for everyday living. And the Bible tells us He's given us everything that we need to make it in life, and part of that that He's given us is His Word. We see, first of all, in this passage of Scripture that the Word of God gives us the knowledge of God. Every World civilization throughout all of world history has known that there is a higher power out there somewhere. Everybody does. Uh, You can look at the world uh, and see a sunrise and say, hey, we didn't manufacture this. We didn't make this. Somebody smarter than us, bigger than us, more powerful than us created this. We refer to this as general revelation. Uh, We can look around and just automatically know that we didn't create this on our own and we're not smart enough to create anything like this on our own as well. One of the men in our church is a nephrologist. I didn't even know what that was. I had to to ask him what it was. It's a kidney doctor. And we were talking one day about the human body and how fascinating of a machine it is. And he began to talk about the kidneys and how it's such a small organ, but inside the kidneys, he said, it's like 10,000 different factories that that, that process and, and clean your blood so that your body can remain free of toxins. And when your kidneys fail, basically the poison runs rampant throughout your whole body that you'll die unless you get dialysis. And I said, man, talk to me about dialysis. I don't understand it. He said, basically, uh, we hook you up to a machine and it filters your blood through a machine that cleans your blood for you and puts clean blood back in. I said, how often do you have to do that? He said, well, it depends on how bad your kidney failure is. Some people have to do it multiple times every single week. And it takes hours to do it. And I said, how, how big is a machine like this? And he said, he said, here's the crazy thing. He said, over time, he said, they used to be really, really big. He said, but over time, we've been able to get the size of a dialysis machine down to about the size of a college dorm refrigerator. And he said, and that was like a modern marvel that we could get it so small. And he, here's what he said. I thought it was interesting that something that God made so incredibly small, the best that we can do with the technology that we have is a refrigerator-sized something we got to hook people up to multiple times a week. He goes, that just goes to show, like, this didn't happen by accident. And so we have to look at just things like the human body, how the kidneys function, and say, hey, on our best day, we can make something that's pretty big, pretty bulky, not very portable to do the job that the human body already does. So that means whoever created this body is a lot smarter than we are and is a lot higher than we are. Everybody knows that. When somebody tells me that they're an atheist, I ask them the question, when did you stop believing Because Romans chapter 1 says that God has revealed himself unto all men so that all men are without excuse. And so I'm really excited. Three weeks from today, we begin our study of Romans verse by verse on Sunday mornings. Bring an extra pair of socks because the first pair is going to get knocked off. I guarantee you that. It's going to be like that good. Like, oh my, Romans is such a powerful book. 
And so as we uh, begin to look at things like general revelation, everybody knows that there's a God, but the question is, how do we know who this God is, what he expects of us? Again, throughout world civilization, you have people who know the sun doesn't rise and set of its own power, so there must be a sun God. The rain doesn't come down from heaven on its own, there must be a rain God. Now, the human body doesn't function the way it's supposed to all the time, so there must be a God of health. And then there has to be some way to appease this God and to, to get on its side or to get it to do what we want it to do. And so I'm thankful that we don't have to guess at what those things are like so many people have in the past. But the word of God allows us to learn of God. And so we learn of God through his word as well. Who is this God? It's the all-powerful Jehovah God of the Old Testament. It's the God who will ha- has always been and will forever be. We learn of God throughout Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, park it there for just a second, and, and as we parse through that verse, all Scripture, how much of it? All of it. Every single bit of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation is good. You can take it to the bank. It's trustworthy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that word inspiration doesn't mean that some guy sat down and was inspired by the thought of God and kind of drew out some words that he thought were helpful because of his inspiration. The word inspiration is the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means God-breathed. And so all Scripture has been breathed out of the mouth of God so that you and I, with great certainty, can say that we hold in our hands the Word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. That means it's good for me and it's good for you. In what areas? First of all, doctrine. That tells us what is right. That tells us how, that what is a, the body of truth that we hold to. Next, for reproof. That tells us what is wrong, what is sinful, what is against God's law. For correction. That tells us how to fix the things that are wrong in our lives. And instruction in righteousness tells us how to maintain a right life. So doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, what's right, what's wrong, how to fix what's wrong, how to stay right. Bottom line, everything that we need to know is in the Bible, and it tells us of God the Father. It's also important to note here that everything that we need to know about God is found in Scripture. If you just take a look at verse number three of our text this morning, according to his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness and through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So it's important to know that everything that we need to know about who God is, he has revealed to us through his word. God doesn't reveal himself any longer through dreams or visions or words of prophecy or extra biblical revelation. God has revealed himself to us through his word, and he's spoken authoritatively through his word once and for all. That also means that you and I, if there's things that aren't included in Scripture, those are things that God intentionally did not want us to know. So, for example, when will Christ return for his church, uh, and when will the church be raptured? We don't know that. The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour. So we run afoul of God's Word when we began to look at extra-biblical sources to try to nail down when Jesus Christ is going to come back. Oh, I'm watching CNN. I'm taking a look at what's happening in the Middle East. I'm talking about, taking a look at what the United Nations and NATO are talking about. We're taking a look at these uh, wars and rumors of wars. And there was an earthquake that happened on this side of the world. And then we begin to look at all these things to try to discern something that God was specifically vague about. And so when's God coming back? When he's good and ready. Simple as that. 
There's other things that we don't know about who God is. I remember as a, as a kid, uh, I, I grew up in church and I had a conversation with my dad one time and I said, okay, well, who are God's parents? Well, God doesn't have parents. Okay, where did God come from? God didn't come from anywhere. God has just always been. Well, what happened before God? There was no before God. Well, there has to be a before God because no, there isn't because God's always been. And I couldn't wrap my mind around that. Now, if God has always been, and the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what happened prior to Genesis 1-1? I don't know. We don't know. Why? Because God doesn't want us to know. If he wanted us to know, it would be found in Scripture. And so everything that we are unclear on in Scripture is, on, is by design. is because that's the way that God wanted it. Uh, and so we learn of God through his word. Secondly, through his word, we learn of Jesus Christ. How do we make things right with this God that we have wronged? We find out about his son, Jesus Christ, through scripture. Now again, it's, it's errant to think, it's wrong to think that Jesus Christ just appeared in Bethlehem, that Jesus begins in the New Testament, he never was before. We took a look at a couple week, weeks ago how Jesus Christ is eternal God. He always has been, always will be. Uh, the book of Hebrews and Colossians both tell us that there was nothing created in this world that was not created by Jesus Christ himself. So we can say with certainty in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's actually speaking of Christ created things by the power of his word in Genesis 1-1. And so there we see that Jesus Christ uh, is present at creation. There in also the Genesis account of creation, the, the spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep. We see that the Spirit of God actually was present at creation as well. And so we see all parts of the Trinity there. And so we learn of Jesus Christ through the Word. Were it not for the Word of God, we would not know who God is, what He expects of us, uh, who His Son was, how He makes things right with us. We would just be kind of uh, running blind. But I'm thankful that the Word tells us about Jesus Christ. Now, if you're trying to think ahead of me on the notes here and you say we learn of Jesus, or we learn of God the Father, we learn of Christ the Son through Scripture, you're probably thinking number three is gonna be that we learn of the Spirit through Scripture, right? Right? Wrong. Uh, here's, what, here's the deal though. The Spirit, we learn through the Word of God for sure, but the Spirit uses the Word of God to help us to know Jesus more. It's a unique relationship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all play unique roles, and sometimes there's a little bit of overlap, but the majority of the time they perform a specific function. And the Holy Spirit's job, get this, the Holy Spirit's job is not for us to know about the Holy Spirit, to get to know Him on a deep, intimate level, the way that we should know the Father and the Son. The whole role of the Holy Spirit is this, to not make a big deal about himself, but to make a really big deal about Jesus Christ. Take a look at what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number 13. This verse is in your notes if you have your notes. If not, you can look it up. John 16, 13, he says this. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now that's really important because the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And so please understand this, the Holy Spirit will never guide you into error. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit will never guide you into error, okay? So when people say, oh, well, God revealed to me that he's gonna return on uh, June the 1st of 2022. Well, the Holy Spirit impressed that upon my heart. I guarantee you that was not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit does not guide you into error. 
Oh, the Holy Spirit impressed upon my heart that I need to leave my wife. <laughs> Guarantee you that was not the Holy Spirit. Promise you. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, but here's what he says, goes on further. John 16, 13. He'll guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he'll show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. And all the things that the Father hath are mine, therefore I said that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So again, the job of the Holy Spirit, if it is to guide us into all truth, where do we find truth? Somebody help me. In the Word. Now, somebody thought that through before they answered. They could have just said the Bible, which would have been true, or you could have said Jesus, which would also be true. But when you say the Word, it actually includes both of those, doesn't it? The Word is truth. The Word of God, the Bible is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. So the job of the Holy Spirit, get me, is to point us back to the Word and point us back to Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to take this to the logical next step. And if you get mad at me, please see me after I'll give you a hug and, and, and explain it to you, okay? But just hear me out. The Holy Spirit does not want a big deal made of him. The Holy Spirit never desires glory for himself. The Holy Spirit never desires attention to himself. The Holy Spirit never commands worship to himself. You with me so far? The Holy Spirit simply exists to point us back to Christ and point us back to the word of God, to help us to be holy, to help us to have discernment, to convict us of sin, and he does all those things through the word of God. So, if the Holy Spirit does not want attention, so much so that you'll never find a single place in all of the Bible where the Holy Spirit is directly addressed. Nobody prays to the Holy Spirit. Nobody talks to the Holy Spirit. Nobody tells the Holy Spirit what to do ever one time in all of the Bible. So, why? Because all he wants to do is point the attention back to Jesus Christ. He is a reflector of the spotlight back to Christ every single time. So, Get this, hang with me. This is why I'm going to say something that, that might ruffle somebody's feathers. If you have a religion that purports to be Christianity, that constantly lifts up the Holy Spirit as the object of attention, Holy Spirit fall, Holy Spirit come, let your spirit come like a mighty rushing wind. Lord, may we see cloven tongues of fire once again. May we speak in languages that we do not know. Help us to see the supernatural. Help us to see the throne room of heaven. Help us to bring heaven down here on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit come, yet we never speak of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. Is that of God? I would venture to say no. If we elevate the Holy Spirit to the detriment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not biblical, that's not of God, and that's not the role of the Holy Spirit. So, I'm gonna take it to the logical extreme. If there's a version of Christianity that downplays Christ and upplays supernatural sign, gifts, wonders, tongues, miracles, seeing heaven, words of prophecy, telling the future. Is that of the Holy Spirit? Somebody help me. No. Okay. So what spirit would that be? It's an uncomfortable answer, isn't it? There's only two spirits. 
There's the spirit of God and there's the spirit of the devil. And who, let me just ask you this. Would God the Father want the spotlight taken off of God the Son and his sacrifice for the sins of mankind to elevate the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is no, absolutely not. The whole point of the Holy Spirit is to point the, the glory back to God the Son. So who would want to take the focus off of the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of mankind and replace it with an emotional spun up feeling that we have of wanting to see supernatural things take place on a daily basis. I think it's the devil. You say, wow, that's, that's a pretty harsh statement. I'm just telling you what John 16 says. That's not of God, that's a fact. And so again, we gotta be really careful. How do we know these things? The Bible tells us. And so what we know of the Spirit, we only know the Spirit through the Word. And He's the Spirit of truth. Well, I just feel in the depths of my bones this feeling. You cannot trust your feelings. You can't. You have to trust the word of God. That's why, again, for, for us, we don't allow the spirit to give us words of prophecy to tell the future. Oh, there's somebody over here that's going through a really difficult time. You know who you are. <laughs> yeah, everybody's going through a difficult time. That doesn't do anything. Oh, whatever's in your heart over here, you that drive a blue car, God's given it to you and he's claimed victory on your behalf and you just need to walk forward. It's like, that's not of God. That's mysticism. That's witchcraft, if anything. Here's what God's told you. Love Jesus, live holy. How about that for a word of prophecy? And word of prophecy, many times in scripture, was not saying what was gonna happen in the future, it was saying what God has already said. And so God has given us a book of prophecy, some of it future events to come, but most of it just here's what God said because the job of the prophet was thus saith the Lord. Hey, here's what God said. God says he's given you everything that you need for this life and to live godly. That's a promise. That's a word of prophecy. Here's what God said. Here's what God said. He's given you great and perfect promises for you. That's a word of prophecy because here's what God has said. But we no longer need extra biblical revelation. I don't need somebody to tell me what's happening outside of Scripture because God's already given me everything that I need within the boundaries of Scripture. And we learn of God through the Word, but we have to know Him through experience. I grew up in a church where I learned a lot of facts about God and a lot of facts about the Bible, a lot of facts about Jesus. If there was a Bible story, I probably knew it. I was in Sunday school from the time I can, my first memories of church, I was in Sunday school. Man, learned the Bible. But in my life, the Bible had no practical application. It was an ancient book full of ancient stories that was basically history. And there wasn't this idea of connecting the word of God with what you're going through this week. I never saw that, ever. If anything, it was a matter of explaining away why the Bible probably didn't apply to our current situation because it was written so long ago. And it's one thing to know facts about God. It's another thing to actually know God. We have people come to our church all the time that found us on the internet. And um, they'll come and say, oh, you know, found a church on the internet. Oh, man, that's great. And they say, oh, you grew up in Kentucky. I sure did. Oh, you're in the Navy. Sure was. Six years in the world's finest Navy. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah, I heard you were in California for all. Absolutely served at one of the best churches in the world, Lancaster Baptist Church, uh, for 10 years of my life. Absolutely. Oh, man, heard you got four kids. I do. They're absolutely adorable. Yeah, I saw pictures of them on the internet. Now, question, does this person know me? No. They know a lot of facts about me. 
but they don't really know me. Now, how many people in this church really know me? The people that have spent time with me, the people that I've shared meals with, the people that I've prayed with, the people that I've tried to give counsel to or have given counsel to me, those are the people that really know me, the people that spend time with me. You know who knows me better than anybody in this world? The people that live under my roof. You know why? Because they spend every single waking moment of every single day with me or thinking about me or wondering where I'm at, right? Why? Every day. It's not enough to just know facts about God. Anybody can get facts about God. It's another thing to actually know God, but you learn God, learn about God through experience. You know God through experience. You see, knowing Jesus is a lifelong journey. It's more than just knowing who he is or some facts about him. It's like really getting to know him on a deep level. We do that through the word, but we also do that through experience. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That we have to be constantly growing to know more about Jesus. Now again, if you've read the Bible, you can say, well, I think I know everything there is to know about Jesus. No, you haven't because you don't learn through Jesus just by reading the word, but you read the word and apply it to your life and that's when you really get to know Jesus. Is God's grace enough? You won't really know until you have to go through that period of time in your life. You, you know that it is. You think that it is. Of course it is. But you won't really know until you actually have to face the need for the grace of God. Is the love of Christ enough to constrain you? You won't really know until that time comes. And so it's more than just knowing facts about God. It's actually applying the word of God to your life. It's about really knowing God on a deep experiential level. It's one thing to know facts about God, but it's another thing to be utterly dependent upon him. We have to ask ourselves if we're truly living by faith, if we're truly living dependent lives upon God. I remember several years ago when we were in California, we come to a place in our life where we were pretty comfortable. We, we bought a house in a great neighborhood, three-car garage, end of a cul-de-sac, great church family. My kids were in a Christian school. Man, life was good. And I'll never forget reading a book that challenged Christians to live by faith. And it said, if you're not living by faith, you're not living a life that pleases God. And I remember I was like, that's a lame statement written by a pastor, of course. You know, pastors say stuff like that. But then it had a Bible verse beside it. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Oh snaps, wait a minute. That's a biblical concept. If you're not living by faith, your life doesn't please God. How will you know that you're living by faith when you get yourself so far out on the end of a branch that if God doesn't come through, this whole thing's gonna blow up really quick? If God doesn't come through for this, we are absolutely toast. That's living by faith. It's not like I have a plan B. Well, if God doesn't come through, we can do this, this, and this. And if God doesn't come through, we can do that, this, that, and the other. When we started who we call it. Look, we, he didn't have a plan B. People say, well, what happens if the church doesn't get off the ground? I don't know. I'll probably be delivering pizzas or something because I don't have a plan B. Like, I don't have a retirement fund to fall back on. I don't got money in the bank that if this, things don't work out, like, if this thing crashes and burns, it's just, I, I absolutely have no idea what I'll do because I, I fully trust God that this is what he wants us to do. Amen. here we are. I learned more about God and more about living by faith in that time period where I didn't have a, a backup plan. 
And you will experience God on a deeper level when you're fully, completely, totally dependent upon him. So God's given us his word so that we'll know him. God's also given us his word to save us. (laughs) One of the greatest promises that we have in all of the Bible is the promise of eternal life, the promise of Jesus Christ slain for sinners. And I hope you'll be here two weeks from now. I hope you have a friend with you. It's going to be an incredible celebration as we look at all that we find in the resurrection of of Christ. The power that we find in the cross, the hope that we have in the resurrection, man, it's going to be incredible. How do we know of that? We know of that through the scriptures, through the Bible. There's a so-called pastor. I won't even give him the, the, the liberty of calling him a pastor who has said, we don't really need the Bible. The Bible's not all that important. We just need to focus more on the resurrection. And again, for anyone that would call themselves a pastor to downplay the sufficiency of Scripture is just foolishness. But then the question that I have is, okay, yeah, sure, without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. The Bible tells us that. But what do we know of the resurrection? How do we know that the resurrection is even powerful? We only know the resurrection and the power that's found there through what we find in Scripture. So you can't disconnect the resurrection and Scripture and use them as two different things. The, the, the resurrection only has power as it's revealed in Scripture. And the power of the resurrection is huge because if Christ be not risen, we are still in our sins. How do we know that? Through the Word of God. And the gospel is the only hope that we have for salvation. Jesus Christ slain for sinners. The only hope that we have... John chapter 14, verse number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you think that there's another way to heaven, first of all, you're wrong. Second of all, you disagree with Jesus, which means you're doubly wrong. Well, I I think by being a good person and being really uh, uh, committed to what you believe will get you to the right place. Okay, then you disagree with Jesus Christ because he says he's the only way to the Father. How do we know that? The gospel tells us so. So again, general revelation of creation, looking at the awe of who God is in creation is a general revelation, but we need to be specifically shown from the Bible, from the word of God, how we can be made right with God, and the gospel shows us that. Again, when you look through all world civilization and religious history, you see that everybody that believed that there was some deity up there, there had to be a way to appease that God whether it's bringing sacrifices, whether it's bringing offerings, whether it's bringing human sacrifice, child sacrifice. You find this now even as you walk through uh, certain types of communities, even in our own town, where you'll have a statue set up outside with candles lit and fruit offered to an idol. Why? We're trying to gain the favor of some deity out there somewhere. Everybody knows if there is a God, you gotta make things right with him. How do we do that? The gospel is the only hope that we have for making things right with the only God that there is. I've sinned against God. You've sinned against God. We've all broken his law. There's only one way that we can make that right. Either die in our sins and settle up our score with God ourselves, or trust in God's payment through his son Jesus. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ came and died in your place to save you from your sins. But friend, you must make that decision for yourself. I would love to save you, but I can't. I would love to pay for your sins, but I can't. I have my own sin debt that I must pay for. I would give anything in the world if our church could save you, but there's not a church in the world that could ever save you from your sins. You must choose to allow Jesus to save you. 
and you need a time, a date, a place in your life where you were born again, Jesus says in John chapter 13, uh, sorry, John chapter three, verse number three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And friend, you need to be saved. You say, I'm not really sure that I'm saved. Let today be that day. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that he died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that he rose again the third day. And I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And if you would do that and truly believe you could be saved today. Friend, if you're not saved, there's no hope for eternal life for you you are 100% responsible for your own sins. And God has said how that ends for you. Colossians chapter one, verse number 23 says this, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached unto every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Hey, if you wanna put your roots down somewhere, put your roots down in the gospel. And knowing the fact that we are saved, that gives us peace, that gives, gives us hope, that brings clarity of mind and clarity of heart. Oftentimes I'll talk with people and I'll say, hey, if you died today, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? Sometimes people say, yeah, I think so. Well, I sure hope so. Or can anyone really know that they're 100% sure they're going to heaven? That's why I'm glad I don't have to tell them what I think. Well, I happen to think that you probably can. I don't have to tell them what my church thinks. Well, my church thinks that you can. I don't have to tell them what my pastor said. Well, my pastor said that you can. I can tell them what God says. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 13. These things, I'm sorry, 1 John 5, 9. Oh, 5, 13, I'm sorry. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life even to them that believe on the name of the Son of God. Hey, God says you can be 100% sure that you're saved, 100%, no doubts. And here's the thing, when we know that we're saved, when we know that when we die that heaven is our home, that brings a lot of peace. You know, the interesting thing about these last couple of years, I'm not afraid of dying, I'm really not. Now, I'm not in a hurry to die. I don't try to like run on the crosswalk on the red hand, I don't drive erratically without a seatbelt. I'm not trying to die, but here's the thing. I don't fear it. And so it's interesting. We lived in a society for a couple of years, and I think still to today, that that thrives on the currency of fear. If we can get you to be afraid, we can get you to do what we want you to do. And here's the thing. You're going to have to come up with something better than death to scare me. Like, death means I get to be forever with the Lord. How is that a bad thing? Death means I get to be with all Christians throughout all of world history, throughout all of the world. How is that a bad thing? I don't fear death. It brings me a lot of peace knowing that when I die, heaven's my home. It brings me a lot of peace knowing that when my wife uh, time comes that we'll see each other in heaven one day. That brings me a lot of peace. No fear, no concern, not scared happens. And let me just tell you this. You're going to die. 100%. The mortality rate of human life is 100%. You're not going to make it out alive. Guaranteed. Where will you go when you die? That will either bring a lot of peace or a lot of care, concern, and fear. But for those of us that are Christians, the Word of God brings peace. Here's the thing. How do I know for sure I'm going to heaven? Because the Bible tells me, Jesus said, search the scriptures. You think in them that you have eternal life because they speak of me. 
I know I'm going to heaven not because I'm a good person, because of what I've done, or because I'm a pastor, or because I showed up to church on a Sunday morning. I know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die because it's the promise of all those whose faith is in Christ as Savior. I'm good. That brings peace on a day-to-day basis. God's given us a word not only to save us, but also to sanctify us. The word sanctify means to set apart, to be used in a distinct way or a distinct manner. You see, the moment that you were saved, friend, you were adopted into the family of God. All of your sins were forgiven. They were washed away as if they never happened. The Holy Spirit came and took up residence in you. You now became a purchased possession of God. God now made you his son, made you his daughter, and gave you a favored position within his family. All that happened in a split second the day you confessed your sin to Jesus. But becoming like Jesus Christ, that's going to take a minute. Sanctification is really a journey of a lifetime. And what helps us with that? It's the Word. The Word sets us, helps us to set up ourselves apart through holy living. I know this might be shocking to some people who would call themselves Christians. But believe it or not, becoming more like Jesus and less like the world actually draws the world to Christ. I'll say that again. Becoming less like the world and more like Jesus actually draws the world to Christ. Here, here's the problem. Uh, Angela and I watched a documentary about a, a so-called church, which is not a church. I'm not even gonna give it the dignity of calling it a church. Um, they basically absolutely imploded on a global scale because it was rife with sin and worldliness, unchecked, 100%. And the idea was, if we can make the church acceptable to the world, then people will be drawn to Christ. But that's the opposite of what Scripture says. And believe it or not, it's the opposite of even, if you took that thought for like 10 minutes and thought it out, rationally, not even biblically, just rationally, it just doesn't make sense. Imagine this. I realize I'm out of weight, out of shape, I've gained a little bit of weight, I wanna be healthy, I wanna live a healthy lifestyle, I wanna live a long time, I wanna feel good uh, about myself, I wanna to exercise, I wanna get more energy, and so I hire a nutritionist and personal trainer, and I'm really excited because I know I gotta make all these changes in my life, and I go to see them and I sit down, and I say, hey man, tell me what I'm doing, I'm finally ready for the first time in my life. And he says, you know what, back in the day, we used to tell people they had to kill themselves with cardio and weights, and uh, back in the day, we used to tell people that they used to have to watch what they eat and stuff like that, but we've just, we're stepping into a new age now of, of a lot of grace in our training that we have, and basically, we're just telling people, like, whatever's good for you is good with us. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to hit the gym. You don't have to go to the gym. Like, if you want to stay on the couch and watch Netflix for a few hours and eat Oreo cookies, that would be great. If it's a Friday night and you feel like ordering a pizza, you should eat it because we're, we're done judging people for their lifestyle choices, and we're just about a whole lot of forgiveness around here. You'd say, well, well I kind of want to, like, get out and exercise. Hey, if you want to do that, that's good, but you're just okay where you're at. We want to create a culture here where you're just okay. You'd be like, yeah, but I want to get healthy. Okay, that's good for you if you want to do that. But you don't have to do that because you're accepted here. You'd be like, am I actually paying you money? Because like, I want to change, right? 
Isn't it funny that when the world comes to the church because they know that staying out on Friday nights and Saturday nights and Sunday nights, drinking until they black out, something's not right with that I need help in the church, pats them on the head and tells them that they're okay? That's a failure of the church. Oh, we don't want to make people feel awkward. They already feel awkward because they're rife with their own sinful condition. I know scrolling apps endlessly on the weekend looking for someone to hook up with isn't right. I need to go someplace that can help me. And we say, you've got your life in a mess, but God loves your beautiful mess. No, I'm trying to change the mess that I have. It's beautiful just the way that it is. And I think they'll walk away scratching their head going like, I thought I was going to be able to change, but I'm not changing. And the whole point of drawing people to Christ is you're a mess, but he can redeem you from the mess and make you better than you've ever been before. Different. That's the whole point of Christianity. And look, I hope that people in this room have enough biblical literacy that if I came in next Sunday with a pair of ripped jeans and my head in a purple mohawk wearing, having my earlobes stretched out to put Coke cans in it and in a wallet chain hanging back here off of my, and, and my shirt unbuttoned down to here with like a mesh tank top underneath, and I'd be like, what's up gang, welcome to Hui College. You'd be like, is this a joke, right? I feel like it's a, the mission of our church to connect with culture and help people see the beauty that's found in Christ, amen? You'd be like, what? <laughs> Why? Because we don't point people to the beauty of Christ by being more like the world. We point to the, to the beauty of Christ by being more like Christ. And so again, it's not adopting the world's playbook to draw people to Christ or to hoodwink people in some way. It's frustrating to see churches these days that don't even call them church, self-churches. Oh, we're New Life Worship Center. Is that a church or is that like a building where people worship? I'm not sure. Oh, we don't want to use the word church because it's a negative connotation. It's a Bible word and Jesus Christ gave himself for the church. Why are you embarrassed to call yourself that? Oh, we call ourselves a gathering place because we don't want to put off people that aren't Christians. People that aren't Christians want to change and they need to find help and hope and they find it in Jesus Christ through his church. Man, we don't win people to Christ by being less like Christ. How do we become more like Christ? Through the word. The word points us to sanctification. The word points us to repentance and the grace of God whenever we sin. Again, man throughout all of human history has tried to find out how can I appease myself and cleanse myself before this deity that I don't even know. The answer is in the scriptures. When you fail, you repent and you start from scratch, start over. And it's frustrating for me to see Christians many times when they find themselves in sin, they want to self-punish themselves. They want to sit in sackcloth and ashes and be sad about their sin. You say, well, isn't that a thing in the Old Testament? Yeah, in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. You got one day a year to fully cleanse yourself from your sin, and that was the day of Yom Kippur. You really wanted to show you were sorry, you sat in sackcloth and ashes and begged God to forgive you. But you know what happens now under the New Testament or the New Covenant since Christ has paid for every single one of our sins? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of it. I don't have to sit in sackcloth and ashes. I don't have to be sad. I don't have to be shameful. I don't have to wear a long face. I need to repent of my sin and do better. 
That's it. I'm thankful that penance is not a biblical concept. Penance is heretical, it's blasphemous, it's shameful, and it makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ. Penance says, oh, God forgives you, but you've got to do these extra things to make sure that you're really, really sorry. That's not a biblical idea. That's a man-made construct by false satanic religion. Because the blood of Christ covers every single sin that I'll ever do, past, present, and future. And I can't add anything to make the blood of Christ a lick better. None. It's powerful. There's power in the blood of Christ. And so when we sin, we get to run to the grace of God. Now, we can never out the grace of God. When you blow it, that's what grace is there for. Hey, if you need a hand, that's what it's there for. Now, we don't abuse the grace of God. We don't presume upon the grace of God. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and sin a lot because I know God will forgive me anyways. No, no, no. Now you're making a mockery of God's grace again. But look, when you blow it, legitimately blow it like all of us do, that's why God has given you his grace. You don't have to shame yourself. Christ was already shamed for your sin. That's what grace is for. How do we find out about the grace of God? Through the word of God. The word changes us to be more like Jesus Christ. The book of James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror that we're able to look at ourselves in light of what God expects of us and we can see our shortcomings. And the trouble that we get into is when we look and we see that we failed and we don't do anything to change it. We just go on about our way. The Bible says it's like a guy looking in the mirror and seeing that things are really messed up but he goes on his own way anyways. But God wants us to see what's wrong and change it. And so the word allows us to see that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the idea. I'm going to change my mind to be more like the mind of Christ. I'm going to change my heart to be more like the heart of Jesus. And here's the awesome part about the Word. The Word tells us what God expects of us so I can look at who I am in light of what the Word says I should be, and those are the things that I need to change. The Bible spells it out for me. You know what the problem is many times for Christians who are immature? And I don't say this like all immature Christians. I'm talking about they have not yet come to maturity. They sit in a gathering like this, and then they look across the room. They go, well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there, so I think I'm doing okay. And then that guy over there becomes the standard. Well, you know, I've got better church attendance than she does, so I think I'm doing okay. I'm not involved in sin like that guy back there, so I think I'm doing all right. Well, when we come to church, I don't see that guy over there singing, and I'm singing, so I think I'm doing okay. And we begin to compare ourselves to one another, which the Bible says is unwise. Don't do that. But here's the standard. The standard is now who? Christ. How is that revealed to us? Through the Word. So the Word, through the Word, gives us the new standard whereby we need to be. And you might look at that and go, wait, wait, wait. I can never be like Jesus. Exactly. That's why it's called a journey to be more like Jesus. Man, wouldn't it be nice if you like, just like snapped your fingers and we were just like Jesus, all of us? Man, wouldn't that be something? There was a really good idea, and I say it was an idea because it wasn't a biblical idea. 
the late uh, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, the Methodists uh, believed in what they called the second blessing, where one could achieve sinless perfection, where you no longer needed God's grace because you no longer sinned. And I've always thought to myself, how do I get that for my kids? Like, if anybody needs that, my kids. And we will forever be in need of the grace of God. We will forever be sinners until the day that we're actually changed to be into the image of Christ. But that doesn't stop us from pursuing sanctification in Christ's likeness. That's the job of every Christian. And how do we find that? We find that through the Word. The Word helps us to transform our minds to be like the minds of Christ. So salvation, miracle of a moment, sanctification and discipleship, journey of a lifetime by far. But the good news is, is on this journey, God's given us His Word to sustain us. You know, if we take a look at this passage, verse number four, whereby we are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So let's read verse four backwards. Think about this. You and I escape the corruption in the world by what? By being partakers of the divine nature, by being like Jesus. How do we do that? Back up even further. By these exceeding great and precious promises. So it's like the Bible's there to give us what we need every single day to be like Jesus. Yeah, that's what verse number three says when it says, according to his divine power, he's given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The word sustains us to do the work. And so... Again, we see what we need on a day-to-day basis. The Word of God will help us. Man, when you need power, the Word of God has it for you. You need encouragement, the Word of God has it for you. You need to be rebuked, the Word of God has it for you. It's what you need to keep moving forward. If you're there in 2 Peter, look back to to 1 Peter chapter uh, 1. First Peter chapter one, verse number 21. First Peter 1, 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, How's the truth found in the word of God? How do we obey the truth? Through the spirit unto unfeigned love. That means uh, authentic love of the brethren. That you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How are you and I born again? By the incorruptible word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all glory of man and the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Get this. The Bible was here before you and I. The Bible will be here after you and I. The Word of God, the Bible says, will stand forever. Everything's going to burn one day. Just know that. Like at the end of of creation, everything's going to burn. Your house, your apartment, your car, your clothes. All the stuff you place importance on, it's all going to be gone. Everything. 
people will die. Think about this. I don't know how many of you could name an ancestor that lived 150, 200 years ago. I know I can't. I struggle to remember the names of my great-grandparents. Why? Because these people are dead and gone. But the Word of God, it still stands. I've already told my kids, I've given them a heads up ahead of time. When I die, I don't have a lot of earthly possessions to give. So if you think they're going to get some big, huge windfall of cash or uh, some great possession I have, I just don't have it. Simple as that. Uh, I got a few cars. Uh, I got a, a couple of nice watches that would not be considered nice by anybody else's uh, uh, stretch of the imagination, but they're, they're meaningful to me. Um, I have enough savings, I think, to pay my bills for three months or six months. Uh, but I don't have a lot of cash. We don't have a lot of real estate or anything like that. You get nothing, kids. And so that's not a, any news to them. But here's what I'm leaving my kids, a legacy of faith. You know why? Because the best gift that I can give you is the Word of God. It will outlive anything that I could possibly leave you. And if I left my kids a quarter million dollars each, that money's going to run out at some point. But the Word of God is inexhaustible. And so, again, when we begin to think about what sustains us, we need to be thinking further down the road of what am I leaving behind? What legacy do I have to give? And just let me tell you this, the day that I die, should you hold a memorial service for me and you get up and tell stories about me, I'm going to come back and slam your cabinets at night and make your floorboards creak, okay? Don't do that. I want you to tell stories about how great Jesus is. I want the legacy of my life after I'm dead and gone to be about Jesus Christ and what he did through my life. Because the word of God will sustain people. And when everything burns, the word of God still stands. Look, when Jesus comes back to rapture his church and all true believers on this earth are gone, this building that we're seated in, I guess the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses can have it, but uh, this building doesn't mean a whole lot at that point, does it? You know why? Because what stands is the word of God. When there's a new heaven and a new earth created, you know what will stand in that day? The Word of God. And I think all of us can say, yeah, that's right. Good. How much time did you spend with it this week? Are you really rooting your life in this? Or is every single decision in your life made according to this book? If not, change your perspective. Three final thoughts and we're done. First of all, you can't know Jesus without knowing the Word. You want to know Jesus more? He's revealed himself through the Word of God. Become a student of the Word of God. Become a theologian of the Word of God. Dig deeper. I'm beginning to think we're having a ladies' Bible study that starts this week on Thursday nights. We're going to talk about uh, the Bible. I'm trying to figure out better ways that we can train and equip our people. We make a big deal about our Wednesday night gatherings that we have on, on Wednesday nights. And let me just tell you, our Wednesday nights are busting at the seams. Like we put people in a parking lot last week and it was awesome. <laughs> but uh, why? I'm trying to get more people to connected to one another, connected to the Word of God, because this is life. It's life. And when you know the word, you'll know God better, you'll know Jesus better, and your life will have more meaning as you plug into the word. But that's a decision you've got to make for yourself. You can't truly know Jesus without fully trusting Jesus. You just can't. I don't know if you guys have seen like those, uh, I forget what they're called, but basically they're like the, the clear platforms that go over like the Grand Canyon and stuff like that that people can walk out on and look down under and stuff like that. 
I look at stuff like that and I realize it's safe. It has to be safe. Like, I can't imagine the liability policy on building something like that. Like, how many tens of millions of dollars you'd have to have in insurance. I can't imagine how over-engineered a structure is like that. Like, I remember when we hung the AC in here. Just to, We'd have structural engineers to say that these concrete pillars uh, would hold up the AC units, which weighed nearly nothing. And we had to get permits and sign-offs and inspections. And So I realize everything that goes into that. I realize the engineers have thought through, if this fails, then we got this. And and they've got contingencies for contingencies and things like that. I get it. It's 100% safe. I understand that with my brain. I will never in my entire life step one foot on one of those things. I promise you that. I just don't trust it. I don't. I wouldn't let my kids out on something like that. I don't trust it. We went to, uh, uh, this past uh, fall, we went to uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And uh, if you've ever ridden the ski lift at the, at the, uh, in Gatlinburg, man, I'm, I'm riding up with Tallulah, who's like four, and she's squirming around, wanting to look at stuff, and I'm just like, <laughs> and I'm like looking at these wires, and I'm thinking like, what is the preventive maintenance schedule on a structure like this? And have they tightened those bolts? Have they greased these pulleys? Like, and like the whole way up, I'm just like white knuckling that thing. It has to be safe. I mean, kids are standing up on it. Uh, people are like taking pictures of themselves. Like, I can't even like reach for my phone because my hand's shaking so bad. I know it's safe, but I just don't trust it. Many people, when it comes to God, they know they just can't trust. And you'll never fully know until you can fully trust. Until you've experienced God, you'll never really be able to trust God. And so some of you need to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. I I trust and I believe and I, I give my life fully to Christ because I trust him. I allow God to make every decision that he needs to make in my life, and I'm going to follow him because I trust him. You need to move from just knowing to actually trusting and following. And final thought here today is you'll know Jesus the most on the darkest days of your life. That's when the rubber really meets the road. When you come to a situation where you say, I have no control over this situation at all. I'll never be able to do anything with this and the only thing that I can do is trust God. That's where you'll really begin to know God. That's when you'll be able to experience the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ. If you've ever had to look at your kid in a hospital bed, if they have a difficult prognosis, you'll think to yourself like, I don't know how one could willingly sacrifice their only child to save a pathetic, disgusting sinner like me, but I, I praise God for his grace. If you've ever had to to look at a situation and you say, I don't know why God would choose to love me, but he chooses to anyways, then you begin to understand the grace of God. When you failed so miserably, and yet you realize that God the Father loves you so much that he sent God the Son to pay for your sin, you experience God on a different level. And so God oftentimes leads us to periods of difficulty so that we can fall upon his grace, so that we can run to him our Father, but we only know that through the Word. So we're coupled with walking actually the walk. We'll help you to know God in a way that you never had before. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, let today be that day. And if you're struggling with just giving in to Christ, give in to Him 100%. I promise you this. He loves you, and His plan is always better than yours. And he's revealed his plan to you in his word. It's really simple. Just obey. 
Maybe you're a Christian here today and you continue to rebel against the grace of God. You continue to sin against the grace of God. You got your own plan that doesn't include God or doesn't include obeying God and you think you got it all figured out. Friend, let me just tell you today, God wants you to follow his plan because he's trying to protect you and increase your joy. Trust the Father as revealed to you in the word of God. Maybe you're a Christian today who like, oh yeah, I believe the word of God's good. I just don't read it. How about you value it for what it is? How about you come back to saying, hey, it is the word of God and I do place great value on it. Whatever God's challenged you with it today, want to just be obedient to it because there's so much hope in the word of God. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.